welcome to NeuroFriends, a podcast about the mind and brain. My name is Sarah Hillenbrand, and I'm here with student host Anthony Agbe. Hey, Anthony. Hi. So, Anthony, you where are you from? Um, I'm from a small city in Southern California, a place called Temecula. It's in between San Diego and L.A. And what do you do here at Stanford? So I'm a bioengineering major here at Stanford in my sophomore year. And outside of that, I do research in a biochemistry lab. This episode, you talked to Levi Gady. He recently finished his PhD in neuroscience at University of California, Berkeley. What did you guys talk about? We talked about how specific cells in the retina, which is part of your eye, are connected and able to transmit information about color to help you see the world. What did you learn about the retina? It was interesting. We got to talk about uh, how this paper was able to sort of validate some of the claims and theories that were going around, but we also had a chance to go into some of the ethics of doing brain research or neuroscience research and some of the techniques that they were able to use. So we read a paper called Functional Connectivity in the Retina at the Resolution of Photoreceptors, and it was written by a collaboration of different scientists, including Greg Field, Jeffrey Gauthier, and Alexander Scher, who are from various institutes and research institutions from around the world, including the United States, Poland, and Scotland. Yeah, this uh, paper in particular has people doing lots of different things, uh, neuroscience, physics, computer science. Let's get our guest out here. You ready? Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Great. Uh, welcome to NeuroFriends. Hi, everyone. I'm Anthony. I'm one of the student hosts for NeuroFriends Podcast, and today we're here with Levi Gady. He's a neuroscientist and science writer. Before we start today, I want to have you like, introduce a little about who you are and what type of work you do. Right. So yeah, um, thanks for having me. I recently finished my PhD at UC Berkeley in neuroscience. I studied something that's very different than the paper we're going to be discussing today. I studied adult neural stem cells that live in the mammalian nose. It's an interesting thing to study because your nose is the only sensory organ that can replace its own sensory tissue, both during the lifespan of an animal and in the case of an injury. And uh, getting into that research was actually something that surprised me because when I started out, I was much more interested in things relating to the paper we're going to be discussing today. So I started off with interests relating to sensation and neural circuitry, and eventually this led me to a lab that studies the sense of smell, and then at the time that lab was transitioning towards understanding the stem cells that drive this really interesting phenomenon of regeneration in the tissue. So that was my academic background. While I was in grad school, I also gained this interest in science communication, and I did some, some writing for some various websites like io9 and Motherboard. And since then, I've been trying to figure out how to make my own way through the science communication world. And right now, I write science magazines for kids at a company called KiwiCrate that makes really cool science project boxes. And I'm really enjoying that work. Awesome. So would you be able to talk about sort of 
how the retina is laid out and what types of cells are in the retina and how it all works. All right. So um, it's been a while since I worked on the retina. So I guess I should preface this by saying that when I started grad school, I rotated in the lab of Marla Feller at Berkeley, and she studies the retina. And when I read this paper back then, it was it was just inspiring. It was like a an interesting validation of a lot of these theories of the retina that have been developed over, honestly, a century. So because of that century of work, we know a lot about the anatomy of the retina. Um, so to give us some context... Light enters, uh, it goes through your cornea, which is clear, goes through the, the pupil. The light goes through the hole, and the retina has a few very well-defined layers to it. The layer that's probably most familiar to people is the rods and cones that actually sense light, right? And those cells basically have two primary synapses in the retina before the signal is sent to the brain. Really quick to clarify, but when you say synapse, mm -hmm. do you mean the connections between neurons? Yes. Okay. There are relatively few intermediates between the rods and cones and the visual cortex. The first synapse is with a cell called a bipolar cell, and these bipolar cells then send a signal down to cells called retinal ganglion cells. And those retinal ganglion cells, their axons constitute the optic nerve that goes to the brain, right? Um, what's really interesting, something that's been more appreciated over the last 50 plus years, is that a lot of computations occur in the retina itself. So we often think that, you know, your sensory organs are doing really coarse filtering and, uh, you know, computations on the, the environmental signals that they, they receive. But it turns out that things as complex as, you know, motion and edge detection can actually occur in the retina. Some of this also occurs in the brain, but it's, it's actually pretty impressive that these very uh, kind of, this, this, this small number of synapses in the retina is able to actually carry out these calculations about light and send the brain something that's a little easier to understand. Um, in addition to the uh, three cells that I've mentioned, which again are the rods and cones, bipolar cells, and the ganglion cells, there are also two cell types that aid in the processing of visual signals in the retina by operating instead of in a vertical fashion up and down the tissue, they operate horizontally. So there's a cell literally called the horizontal cell. The horizontal cell seems to actually uh, influence signals in the rods and cones themselves. They don't actually interact with the bipolar cells, which is kind of interesting. So for some reason, the rods and cones have these other cells that serve as like indirect bridges for certain signals. And then additionally, there are these cells called amacrine cells that serve as bridges between the retinal ganglion cells. And I don't know that much about the horizontal cells. I can say that the amacrine cells do really amazing things. Um, and they lack axons. So normally a neuron has like an axon that sends a signal and a dendrite that receives a signal. But amacrine cells are one of a handful of cell types that just have dendrites. And uh, some, some work that was carried out in my department recently was able to show that those dendrites in little segments of an individual dendrite can function as a complete circuit. So in, within one little segment of a dendrite, you can have an input and an output. And that input-output relationship 
computes aspects of motion. So there's some pretty wild stuff going on in even segments of these cells in the retina, and we're only beginning to understand it. But again, the anatomy of the, re the retina has been known for like 100 years, and it has served as like a classic model for scientists to try to figure out how computations occur in the nervous system. It's a very simple circuit, and if you compare it to the rest of the brain, we understand the retina a lot better because of its simplicity. So we talked about how you have the rods and cones at sort of like the very bottom of the retina, followed by the bipolar cells, and then the retinal ganglion cells. With this paper, they started looking at and trying to test how they're all interconnected. Mm -hmm. So what were your big takeaways? When I first saw this paper and read it, um, the amazing thing to me was that they were able to use a stimulus that was very, very refined and very controlled. So every single pixel that was presented to these retinas, they knew the exact intensity of that pixel, including its color values in red, green, and blue. And they also knew to a very like fine degree of certainty exactly when that pixel was presented. Right? So they had a, just a really, really sharp stimulus. And then additionally, they had a really high-resolution way of like, basically pulling out signals from these retinal ganglion cells, and it's called a multi-electrode array. And all that this is is that it's a bunch of little tiny metal electrodes that sits on top of the retinal ganglion cells, and if you have enough of a density of those electrodes, you can easily discriminate between signals from individual cells. And what this paper did is they were able to stimulate the retina and record from the retina in one fell swoop and actually uh, pull out very fine relationships between individual cones and individual ganglion cells. And this is something that the field might not have been surprised by, but it was able to demonstrate that there were now tools available that could potentially in the future allow for more subtle probing of how these circuits work. So we've been talking about how we're shining lights on retinas, they're responding to stimulus. Are these in a live animal or are they sort of just sitting in a plate? Right. Um, so these retinas are definitely sitting in a plate. Um, the retina is a beautiful and forgiving tissue to work with for a neuroscientist. So you can dissect out the retina, and as long as you're kind of careful, um, you can put it into a dish that contains what is called artificial cerebrospinal fluid, or ACSF. And cerebrospinal fluid is the fluid that your brain is constantly bathing in, inside of your skull. And neurons just like hanging out in cerebrospinal fluid. So neuroscientists have come up with a uh, commercially available solution that mimics real cerebrospinal fluid, and it turns out that if you dissect out a retina and put it into a petri dish with some of that ACSF, and then furthermore, if you bubble the right concentrations of various gases through that liquid, the retina will continue to be functional for a surprising number of hours. Um, this technique is also used to study specific parts of the brain. There is a lot of research being done on 
slices of the hippocampus. The hippocampus is a part of your brain that processes memories, and you can actually take slices of hippocampus, put them into a petri dish with something like ACSF and something like you know the right concentrations of gases, and you can do experiments on that slice of neural tissue for hours. Um, this has been a boon for for the study of neural circuits because you can't actually probe the brain at that degree of, of, of fine-grained resolution, right? When I was working on the retina, again, this was with mouse tissue, I was able to do a technique called a wholesale patch clamp, which is something that, it's, it's honestly amazing. Like, when I was an undergraduate and I learned about this technique, I was in awe that it existed. All that it is is it allows you to stick a microscopic glass pipette into a neuron, connect that pipette to an oscilloscope, which is just a machine that can interpret electrical activity, and you can actually watch a neuron send its signals. And I was able to do this in the developing mouse retina, and it was something that I picked up over the course of just a 10-week rotation early in grad school. And it, it's a very cool technique, but again, the, the retina is like the most ideal tissue in which to study a simple circuit um, because it's it's relatively easy to dissect. It will last as long as you treat it nicely inside these petri dishes and you can do things like put it in a petri dish, shine light on it, and record with some multi-electrode array and it'll still work, right? And it'll work for hours. Given that things like brain damage are typically permanent in the nervous system, it's it's truly remarkable that we can actually study working circuits after we've cut them out. And I think that, you know, while it's very true that you don't want to damage your nervous system because at the level of medicine, we still struggle to help people with damage to the nervous system, I think over time we will see that our nervous systems are more resilient than we give them credit for. And with luck, maybe some of the, the research we do that depends on its resiliency will turn into therapies that actually harness that resiliency for, for a good cause. Small aside, you talked about the patch clamp technique. Are you doing that by hand to pick single cells or is it assisted when some sort of mechanical assistance? It's definitely assisted. There are um, aspects to the technique that are kind of hilariously, uh, I wouldn't say crude, but they seem kind of old school. Um, so for instance, you do use a micro manipulator, which is like, you know, a three axis set of knobs to, to lower your micro pipette onto a single cell, right? But at the same time, you are manipulating the pressure inside of that micro pipette using your mouth. Um, and so you actually have your mouth on a tube that is connected to uh, the inside of the pipette and by blowing very gently or by sucking very gently on that pipette, you can create really uh, informative situations um, relating to your pipette and the neuron that allow you to investigate the behavior of like a little patch of the membrane of the neuron or the whole neuron itself. And it's definitely a really fun technique to learn. I remember feeling like it was like playing a video game that had real value because a lot of it is just like lowering this pipette in multiple dimensions. You don't have great, uh, a great view of the whole thing while it's happening. So you have to 
gain a good sense, kind of like riding a bike, of like how your movement of your hand on the micro manipulator will create movement of your pipette. But there is truly nothing like when you finally master this after, you know, breaking a lot of pipettes, destroying a bunch of neurons, and then finally one day your pipette sits on the neuron and you, you create just a little bit of negative pressure and all of a sudden on the oscilloscope you're seeing uh, signals come from that neuron. Um, to this day, that's one of the coolest memories I have from graduate school. So you talked about how this was done in primate tissue versus human tissue. How does that process sort of work and does that change some of the conclusions that come out of this data? Right. So that this question... Um, fits in nicely, again, to why I chose this paper and why I really have, uh, like, this paper made an impression on me many years ago. Um, most animals do not have three cones. Therefore, you cannot ask questions about three cones if you're looking at tissue from a mouse or tissue from a dog, right? Um, in this case, they were privileged and lucky enough to obtain tissue from uh, rhesus macaques. And those monkeys are normally not sacrificed for uh, just doing this type of neuroscience research. You're not going to actually kill a, a macaque monkey um, just to carry out this one study. So in this case, what, they, what these scientists did is they collaborated with groups that were doing probably behavioral research on monkeys for many, many years. And when these monkeys reached a, an elderly age, they were euthanized and then their tissue was donated for further study, basically to get the most out of the sacrifice of that animal's life. And what that also means is that when these monkeys are old enough to, to, be, to, to be euthanized, these scientists have to be ready with their, their rigs. They have to have their stimulus ready to go. They have to know how to use the software to, to present the stimulus and how to use the software to interpret what their microelectrode array is saying right? Um, and so I have a lot of respect for this type of research because it is not the type of research that anyone can do. It means that the people handling the tissue have to be very experienced with it. You don't want someone who has shaky hands putting this tissue on your microelectrode array. And um, I'd say I also have some personal feelings about this too because when I did work on the retina, I did similar work with mice. And Mice are easier to work with because the tissue is not quite as important, right? Um, and you can interpret that as you will, but basically this type of study where you're looking at color vision can only be done with this heightened degree of expertise and this uh, heightened responsibility for using an animal that for a number of good reasons uh, we value more than other animals. It's really interesting that you bring up this idea of just wide-scale collaboration among different like scientific groups. Have you and some of your work come across that type of collaboration? How has that made science different than working on it like on your own or solo? Right. So I'd say that you know the the life sciences are built on collaboration. Some scientific fields don't require it quite as much, but today if you want to do good research on the brain or in biology, you have to collaborate. I was lucky enough to collaborate with a group of statisticians and computer scientists for my research as a PhD student, um, and it was a wonderful experience. You know, They didn't know much about the system that I was studying. 
I knew very little about the, the ways to model my data um, that, that would actually make my data make sense. So collaboration is really important. I think collaboration doesn't get as much respect as it should. I think that a lot in publication and the way that people get jobs in academia still depends on this kind of denial about collaboration. Um, collaboration also, you'd think, would lead to more sharing of, of uh, resources between labs, right? But what you often still see is that because people are kind of in denial about the necessity of collaboration, um, you see more competition than is necessary. You, you, you see opportunities get lost. So with the first part, it was essentially trying to identify based on sort of their plate of uh, cells, which one or what types of retina ganglion cells were. How do you go from stimulating the uh, cells to saying this is this type of retinal ganglion cell from another? Right. So a lot has been, or a lot was already known about the anatomy of the retina before this paper, right? And one of the big things that people have appreciated about the retina for decades is that there's a lot of diversity in amongst retinal ganglion cells. So some of the retinal ganglion cells have really big, what are called arbors, kind of like a tree arrangement of their dendrites, right? And if you have a big dendritic arbor, you can catch the signals from a large number of cells that are upstream of you. Um, on the other hand, there are retinal ganglion cells that have very small and concentrated dendritic arbors, so they're only receiving signals from a smaller number of rods and cones and then bipolar cells, right? Um, and so it was already known that midget cells, midget cells being a cell type of the retinal ganglion class, that those cells had small dendritic arbors. It's already known that parasol cells had these very large dendritic arbors. So what's cool here is that they could functionally validate what people had seen under light microscopes for a long time, right? And that, and that was why, for me, this was a pretty inspiring paper. So you have the, uh, oh, stimulus with smaller pixels. Yeah. Um, so they were using um, pixel sizes that were smaller than the size of a given cone or rod. And this was good because that meant that they were sometimes presenting um, pixels to areas of the retina that could not detect light. And that's why they were able to produce receptive fields for these ganglion cells. So a receptive field for a ganglion cell would be the pattern of rods and cones that feed into the uh, signals that come from that ganglion cell, right? So the ganglion cell is basically summing all of the inputs from the rods and cones above it, right? And what's interesting is that they could show that there were islands of this in, within this receptive field that were not responsive to light. And so that just suggests that their stimulus um, very nicely was, had a higher resolution than the actual array of rods and cones. And that's nice because if your stimulus is coarser than the array of rods and cones, you would start to stimulate multiple rods and cones at the same time, and that would just muddy your data. So in that sense, the, the stimulus was very refined. The multi-electrode array, I didn't actually double check the uh, spacing between the electrodes, but oftentimes, um, because these ganglion cells are 
they're larger than the rods and cones. It's pretty easy to use well-defined algorithms to, to sift out the signals coming from an individual ganglion cell. And that's what they were able to do. So one of the other nice things about this paper is that when you look at the receptive fields of a few different ganglion cells, what you can see very nicely is that some of these ganglion cells are sampling from the same rods and cones. And this shows that when they were doing their experiment, they had enough resolution and enough duration of their experiment to actually tease apart inputs to like retinal ganglion cells that had overlapping receptive fields. And that, that's one of the reasons why this paper was just so cool, because we know that the retinal ganglion cells tile all of the area of these rods and cones. And what's been hard to prove is, say, the, the specificity of specific rods and cones to specific retinal ganglion cells. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> yeah. So on a follow-up, in a way, you talked about these receptive fields that are around uh, these ganglion cells. So do what you called midget and parasol cells, they have different receptive fields, or is it just the cones that they sample from within their receptive fields are different? So the rods and cones are, they don't really vary. Like, so if you have a red cone, it's going to be red almost wherever you are. There are some differences in the retina. If you're talking about the fovea versus the peripheral area of the retina, the fovea is the center part of your visual field, and most of your cones are actually in your fovea. So this study was clearly done using a part of the retina that is in the fovea, and they didn't really look at rods. So, so there are some differences like between how rods and cones work. So rods are often helping you see in dim light, and cones are the, basically give you color vision and also allow you to have high acuity. So there are some differences there, but in terms of the, the midget versus the parasol cells, I feel like this study validated what people had seen anatomically. People had seen under a light microscope that the dendrites of the parasol cells were more numerous and spread out more broadly than the dendrites in the midget cells. And that highly suggested that the parasol cells were receiving signals from more cones, right? Um, but this study was able to show, hey, these 50 cones feed into this parasol cell, and these 12 cones feed into this midget cell, and maybe eight of them are in common. And that's also pretty interesting because it means that there's a lot of redundancy in these different layers of the retina, and it's likely that that redundancy is what allows the retina to carry out computations even though, again, it's relatively few synapses before the signal is sent to the brain. The way that I, I might make an analogy would be like, imagine you're playing a game of, of telephone, right? Um, the cup that you are using to enhance your hearing is like the dendrites and your mouth is like the axon, right? And the difference between the parasol cells and the midget cells would be that the parasol cells have a bigger cup. So they have a larger like area from which they can receive input and the, the midget cells have a smaller area. Um, it's fairly easy to stimulate the rods and cones, record from the ganglion cells, and immediately understand who has a telephone connection to who. You've been talking about these computations that they're doing specifically in the retina and with rods and cones, and cones in general, which are working with color vision. What mm -hmm. do these computations sort of comprise of? I can speak in general terms about this. Um, 
these computations are going to allow the retina to confirm that any signal it sends to the brain is real and is meaningful. So an analogy would be a microphone, even a microphone we're using here in this podcast, having too much sensitivity to sound in the room, right? The retina suffers from the same problems as any sort of sensory device or sensory organ. It could fall prey to its own sensitivity and noise could completely muddle the real signal that you want to be able to hear from your environment, right? And with light in particular, this is a problem. This is why, you know, creating a bionic eye is something that people are still very actively working on. It's a difficult problem to get like a video camera that can identify objects and easily adapt to numerous environments, right? So when you have a photographer who moves from a sunny environment to a dark environment, they have to switch lenses. Our eyes do that automatically. And it only takes, you know, a couple seconds, sometimes, you know, 30 seconds for us to adapt. And so there's an amazing amount of plasticity going on in the retina. Plasticity just means that the retina can change its sensitivity depending on the circumstance. It is like plastic, it can change. So as we continue to work through, so at first they were stimulating with very fine stimulus and they were to say that, oh, these are each individual cone in a way that we're going to each of the retinal ganglion cells. They seem to have found a difference between what they call off midget cells to the other cells in that they had a lot more connections to the short cones, which are the blue cones. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Right. So humans in general, and I think other animals, and the primates that contributed the retinas for this study, have better vision in the red and green wavelengths of light. And we actually have many, many, many more cones that are sensitive to red and green light compared to cones that are sensitive to blue light. Now, it's worth uh, reflecting on the fact that these cones are not exclusively sensitive to light in these wavelengths, they just have a preference for those types of light. But this is why like, we are better at, at, at looking at things that have red and green wavelengths inside of them, and this reflects anatomy, right? And so the anatomy is that there are fewer sensors in your eye for blue light, and furthermore, there are fewer ganglion cells that seem to be listening closely to those blue cones. When they shined blue pixels of light onto the retina and they got a signal out of a given ganglion cell, it was likely that that ganglion cell was an off midget cell. Yeah, so now that they know that these, or they proved that these off midget cells listened a lot more to these blue cells, does that tell us anything about the functions of these off midget cells compared to the other ones? or? how we can turn that information into color? That's a great question, and it's a question that these authors had. When you're doing a study like this, you're looking at the input and output of a piece of retina that has been isolated from the rest of the brain. And it's a great question. What, where are these off-midget cells sending their signals, right? Is there something special about blue light? Can we learn something about, like, color vision based on that. And it's worth noting too that, you know, humans and primates have three cones. Um, 
I'm pretty sure that most other, that many other mammals only have two cones and have less of a refined sense of color vision, even though they might have heightened sensitivity in other sensory areas, like their vision is not quite as colorful as ours. But that's just something they can't answer with this type of study. And I would also argue that it's, it's not something that is easily studied in neuroscience right now. There is very interesting work that can be done on the retina when you can especially isolate it from model organisms or, you know, when you're lucky enough, like these researchers, to have access to primate tissue. That's an amazing opportunity to look at circuitry in the retina. But if you're talking about vision, the real truth is that, you know, we can't go into the human brain to ask questions about vision. We remain outside of the human brain whenever we we do those experiments. And so that's just something that maybe, you know, in in our lifetime, maybe we'll see some progress be made on that front. But right now we have to, we can only wonder what the, what the, the, the bridge is between the computations of the retina and our interpretation of color. And you mentioned that a lot of the times you're doing modeling of your data in order to come up with conclusions. And in here they do the same thing where they create a model and they sort of vary some of the parameters that go in to prove that this model works. Uh, Could you talk about this idea of modeling biological data to get conclusions? Right. Um, So I'll talk about it in terms of of just this paper. So going into doing this study, these researchers knew that there were some theories about how ganglion cells listen to cones, right? And some of these theories are like, controversial. So there, there can, you can imagine that depending on how you do an experiment, you can come up with data that leads you to a different conclusion than another lab, right? I'd say that what was interesting about this paper is that they were able to basically confirm that a lot of the prior research had elements of truth, even if there seemed to be some contradictions, right? So there seems to be this question about whether or not retinal ganglion cells are... Um, selective in terms of the cones they listen to. The data here shows that some of the ganglion cells are selective. It also shows that some of them are less selective and just randomly seem to sample from the cones, right? Somehow, those ganglion cells still are probably contributing meaningful data to, meaning meaningful signals to, to your brain, right? Um, in this case, with the modeling, what they did is they, since they had identified the locations of every single cone feeding into each of these ganglion cells, they could first calculate whether there seemed to be a bias in the identity of the cones feeding into that ganglion cell. So does this ganglion cell seem to prefer to listen to green cones or to red cones, right? Um, And then based on that, they could apply a model in which they would randomly change the identity of those cones and see if it would change the output of the cells. And what they found is that changing certain parameters, including this bias, to be more random did actually change the output of these cells, which suggests that those cells depend on this bias in their sampling, right? But I should also say that the change was somewhat mild. So you still sometimes had ganglion cells responding to signals that they shouldn't have been responding to on the basis 
of saying that there is bias, right? Um, and that's kind of interesting. They specifically looked both at whether these cells were biased in which cones they listened to, and they also asked whether those ganglion cells were kind of uh, muting certain cells to r arrive at the same bias, right? So you can imagine that, you know, you can either put your hand over the headset to ignore someone or you could just not have made the phone call in the first place, right? And in this case, they found subtle biases in connectivity and they found slightly, like, less subtle but still pretty subtle biases in the sampling um, of, of cones by a given ganglion cell. Um, and I, I thought it was definitely like a pretty interesting method to, to try to validate some of these theories on how this all works. Um, from what I can tell, this same group has followed up on this research with uh, more refined applications of this same technique. So they've used the same stimulus and the same method of recording from these ganglion cells to address m more subtle aspects for instance, can you get a retinal ganglion cell to send a signal if you stimulate just one cone, right? Turns out you can. This was something that was postulated a long time ago because we know that animals are sensitive to single photons. So a single photon of light can be used to, like, el to elicit a behavior in an animal with right, the right training. And that really suggests that single cones can set off a cascade of signals from the retina to the brain. But using these methods, they could now actually say that single photon hit this particular cone and got this retinal ganglion cell to fire, right? And that, again, is a remarkable resolution to, to be able to, uh, like a, an impressive resolution at which to confirm theories that have been uh, first identified using things like behavior, right? So I talked before about how there's this big gap in our understanding of the circuitry in the retina and what's going on in the brain. And so it's it's really cool when you look at something a little more closely, like like a retina in this case, and you're able to say, hey, this matches up with the, the more macroscopic thing that I observed decades ago. Awesome. So a lot of what's coming out of this is definitely sort of the method that you said of being able to uh, stimulate different things at this small of a scale. For you, have you seen this type of technique start applying to things in the uh, olfactory system as well in your own research? So I can draw a loose but a compelling <laughs> relationship between these things. So um, every cell in your body has DNA. And every cell in your body, mo or most cells in your body, have the same DNA. But as you know, your body has different types of cells. You have muscle cells, you have blood cells, you have skin cells, you have neurons. Um, all of these cells typically have mostly the same DNA, but there are some genes that are important just for muscles, just for neurons, just for skin cells. And in order for those cells to properly carry out their roles in your body, they need to only turn on the genes that are useful for that function. So gene expression refers to the specific genes that are being used in a given cell um, to ensure that it can carry out its role. And what's interesting is that gene expression 
varies a lot. So even though all these cells have the same uh, number of chromosomes and the same DNA in those chromosomes, that information is not being uniformly used across all the cell types. And it is being used in the same way as how, say, someone who's studying history might check out different books from the library than someone who's studying science, right? It's the same library, but to carry out your function, you need to be reading the right information. Um, so again, I didn't study circuitry in the olfactory epithelium. Epithelium just means a layered structure. Epithelium also refers to your skin, um, like your epidermis is an epithelium. So the olfactory epithelium is just these layers of cells in your nose that interpret smell. My lab had already done a good amount of work identifying the descendants of stem cells that live in this tissue, right? And so we knew that these stem cells could produce both neurons and support cells, but we had observed this at a population level where we could follow the descendants of all the stem cells and say, hey, we're getting neurons, we're getting support cells, we're getting more stem cells. Look, that's really cool, right? So what I was able to do for my research, again, also as part of a collaboration with statisticians and other members of my lab, we were able to trace single stem cells, um, both inside the tissue where we could watch them uh, differentiate or mature into either a neuron or a support cell. And we also were able to use single cell sequencing techniques where we isolated individual cells and looked at the transcripts, so the gene expression that were present in individual cells at different time points as those cells matured. And so what we ended up with is we ended up with like snapshots of what these cells looked like and snapshots of the genes that they were expressing over time. And we were able to validate all these ideas that we had come up with when we looked at the population, but we validated that it was going on at the level of single cells. And this is a trend that is occurring in a, a wide number of fields because it's becoming increasingly clear, for instance, in, in cancer. Tumors are not homogenous. Tumors have small numbers of cells that are driving the growth of the tumor, and then large numbers of cells that are different that aren't really driving the whole thing, right? And this fits into hypotheses about cancer that have existed for a long time, that if you have like bad mutations in a few cells, you can get cancer. But there was this other question of like, well, if you biopsy a, a tumor and you grind it up and you look at all the genes inside of it, right? If your cells are heterogeneous, you are muddying the signal of which genes are driving the growth of that tumor. Because if it's a minority of cells, their gene expression is washed out by the gene expression of all these kind of like, they're not innocent bystanders, but they're not leading the pack, right? Um, for a long time, we didn't know whether tumors contained just one type of cancerous cell or whether there were certain cells in a tumor that were uh, more or less detrimental with regards to whether that tumor grew or metastasized and, and you know, like basically spread to the rest of the body. And because we have these newer techniques that allow us to look at aspects of individual cells in a tumor, it's become clear that a minority of cells in a tumor are responsible for that tumor's growth and its metastasis. And that's important because if we are going to develop good chemotherapies, we want to target those chemotherapies and other treatments to the cells that are actually causing 
the cancer and not to the cells that are just along for the ride. That relates more to my research. There are people who also study um, phenomenon that are occurring in, say, uh, single neurons. So seeing how single neurons contribute to circuits, kind of like this research. And there are people who are studying how single molecules behave, right? And the way to contextualize this is that 20 or 30 years ago, the techniques that were available forced us to always look at populations of cells, populations of molecules. And so now that we have more refined techniques, more refined imaging, we even have more refined computation. We, computer science has made a lot of progress over time. Um, we can now say with more confidence whether or not a theory based on a population type of experiment actually can be validated when you look deeper at single units of a system. And as we close out, this paper is published back in 2010, I believe. Have you seen any long-lasting impacts of what this paper published and how has it impacted the field? So I can't say that I've been following this field particularly closely because, again, my research took a different turn. But I did kind of look into what this lab has been doing. And um, I'd say the most interesting thing for me that I saw was that they are continuing to use this very refined stimulus as well as some of the techniques for using the multi-electrode array to ask more detailed questions about the retina. So in this study, I'd say they confirmed a number of aspects of connectivity between cones and ganglion cells that were already uh, predicted to exist, and they were able to show that they did exist, right? And now this group is using the same techniques to ask questions relating more to the exact computations that are occurring as a signal goes from a cone to a ganglion cell. And those questions could include how are signals from two cones combined by the time they get to a ganglion cell, right? Um, do you see something that's called nonlinearity, which just means something that's more complicated than addition when you actually combine signals at the level of a cone to a ganglion cell. And so um, I can't say anything that is more specific about that, but it's always impressive when a lab comes up with a technique and is then able to address um, more and more refined questions about the same tissue using that technique. I think it's the goal of many scientists to develop a tool that can be applied beyond just the questions they care about, and this group clearly succeeded in that. Okay, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come over here and talk about this with us. It oh, was yeah. really, really fun. It was, it was a lot of fun for me too, a nice little trip down memory lane, and always good to review how awesome the retina is. So thanks for the opportunity. So we, uh, what did you learn, Anthony? So one of the biggest things that I learned is that despite the small scale of the retina and all of these competing theories of how these cells are interconnected, the group here was actually able to develop some new technologies to be able to study these cells and determine how they're really connected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it seems like this group has uh, developed something cool that can be used over and over again. The full citation on that article, uh, the people who did the work are Greg Field, Jeffrey Gauthier, Alexander Schur, Martin Greshner, Timothy Machado, Lauren Jepson, Jonathan Schlenz, 
Deborah Gunning, Keith Matheson, Vedislav Dabrowski, Liam Paninsky, Alan Litke, and E.J. Chichilniski. This paper appeared in Nature in 2010. This is our last episode of the season, so we want to thank everyone one last time by name. From the Stanford Storytelling Project, we want to thank Will Rogers, Jonah Willinghans, Jake Warga, and Jenny March. From Thinking Matters, we want to thank Tiffany Liu, Parnas Gupta, and Ellen Woods. From Generation Anthropocene, we want to thank Michael Osborne and Leslie Chang. And for feedback on this episode in particular, we want to thank Amy Orsborn and Jen Sloan. Thanks for listening. Good. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no.